You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Hello everyone, I'm Matthew Taylor, I'm Chief Executive of the RSA. It's my great pleasure to welcome you here for this evening's <laughs> special event. Tonight is an opportunity for us here to celebrate a long-standing tradition of collaboration between the RSA and the Commonwealth Foundation. And for the RSA to publicly acknowledge our debt of gratitude to the Foundation and to warmly thank its trustees and leadership team for their many years of support. Our relationship has a rich and fascinating history that goes back to the 1970s when we first came together to work on what was to become a substantial programme of support for British manufacturing, culminating in the very successful industry year in 1986. Since then, our partnership has been sustained over many projects and initiatives, all united and underpinned by a common interest in and support for making and making things happen. In all of this, we have stayed true to Dimitri Komono's original vision for the foundation. Dimitri was himself a maker in a sense of being an engineer and founder of a multinational manufacturing company. He was also someone driven by conviction that the capacity to make things happen, the power to create, as we call it here at the RSA, can be explored can be developed and can be shared. We have only a short time available this evening to look back on some of our joint activities over the years, but of particular relevance to this evening's discussion, I'd pick out the success of the Future Maker Day held in Somerset House in June 2013 and the Manchester Make It Together first gathering of makers from around the country in April 2014, led by Nat Hunter, who was then the RSA's Director of Design. And of course, most recently, Commonwealth's support for the Pupil Design Awards, which we've just celebrated today on RSA Arts Day. The whole of this building has been filled with pupils from our academies and from other schools today. So an inspirational annual gathering which sees pupils travel here from all over the country to bring vividly to life the transformational power of learning through making. So why is it that our organisations are so keen to support and encourage participation in hands-on making experiences? Why do we believe so strongly that making matters? What do we lose when we lose access to the freedom to tinker to explore, to experiment? How can we create more resources, spaces and opportunities for more people to learn through making? To help us explore these questions and more, no doubt, we've brought together an expert group this evening who are passionate advocates for the value, purpose and power of making. We're delighted to welcome Zoe Lachlan, co-founder and director of the Institute of Materials at UCL and who may be a familiar face Institute, and voice Institute to you. Institute of Making. Oh, sorry. Institute of Materials is a government... Oh, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Wow. We never make mistakes. (sighs) And who may be a familiar face and voice to you through her podcast and her appearances of one of the team of designers on the inspirational BBC Two series, The Big Life Fix. So let's first of all start with Zoe. Okay. Um, I come from a long line of makers, really. Both sides of my family are farmers, four generations, and... This is a detail of something on the farm, which the keen-eyed amongst you will have probably determined is a sort of fragment of a hat. Um, It is specifically the join between a downpipe and a water butt, as created by my grandfather, potentially in 1955. We're not totally sure, because he wore this hat, uh, this style of hat, from about 1950 onwards and went through one every five years or so. And he lacquered this and made it a join, but uh, just between, as I said, the downpipe and the water butt. At other places around the farm, other ones of his hats got turned into other things, like one got made upside down and a hole was this way and it was used as a funnel. And um, I guess the point I want to make is that 
you, you, you and I, we all make things all of the time, and we lay our hands to things to improvise solutions and work out how to solve a problem. And I suppose the Institute of Making is something which formally was founded in 2010, but grew out of a collaboration which began in 2005. But on another hand is my life's work, and it is another way people before me's work as well, because what this, this space is about, it's about the relationship between materials and process. And we are now, a, it was one of those things, if you name it, it will come. We are now a proper institute, as it were, uh, at University College London, and anybody at UCL can become a member of the Institute of Making. So that means we have members who come from every single department. That might be the Slade School of Fine Art and the Bartlett School of Architecture, or you know, lecturers in medicine or anthropology, archaeology, history, philosophy, chemistry, physics, biology. You name it, UCL has it. And the one thing it doesn't have, though, is a design school. And in some respects, the Institute of Making sits at this fulcrum point between all of the different disciplines at UCL and says, if you're interested in process, you're interested in material, this is a space for you. And you can come in and you can explore our wondrous materials library, or you can use our workshop, and the space as a manifestation of our belief that making is basically defined by the relationship between material and process, has at one end the materials library and at the other the workshop, which I describe as an exercise in building my dream garden shed. It really is about having all those bits and bobs that you might have if you could have one at home, at the, about the scale of something you might be able to squeeze in this shed. Over two floors, we have everything from 3D printers and laser cutters to sewing machines and potter's wheels and milling machines and, yeah, all sorts of different things. And our, we're there to say yes, and you can come and do your own project, a hobby, fiddle about, or you could do a multi-million pound research project. And all of those things happen in that space. And we have a massive 10-ton crane, so we can do big things, but also small things. We have a world record for the world's largest laser cutter as we turned our crane using an illegal laser into a laser cutter. And then the next year, we set the world record for popping the most number of balloons, because while we had this laser, we thought, what else could we blast with it? But... Um, <laughs> This was one of our members who came to UCL to do geography. I'm giving a sort of educational focus here. He came to do geography, spent most of his time at the Institute of Making, left with not a particularly good degree in geography, but was headhunted into uh, BAE systems. So basically, you know, defence, Ministry of Defence type work. But he has a small startup lab of five. He's, he's like a mini queue, and they said, we just want you to do the sort of thing you did at the Institute Making, but just here with these resources. Just through his experience at the Institute Making and crossing between different disciplines, he became immensely employable, but more, it wasn't about employable. He just became an interesting person and um, someone who was able to follow his passions. So we, do, we have our members getting up to all sorts of madness. We have the public coming to us, we're day one today of our five-day festival of stuff right now, to which thousands of people come and do all sorts of things. But at the heart of it is experience, and it is this sense in which you, I can tell you all about materials, I can tell you all about processes, but it's not until you have a go yourself and do it that you will know something else about it and something that I can't explain to you in words and I can't write down. Um, if I was to pass these to Matthew and say... OK this one up then that one with the same okay so you can see one is heavy one is light you can hear that they're, they're different 
They're of the same volume, the same mass. The, this one on your left is aluminium. The heavy one on your right is tungsten. So these are pure elements, materials which exist on the periodic table, and the difference between them fundamentally is atomic mass. This one has heavier atoms than that one. So due to the fundamental difference of the science of the matter, you have an extremely different experience of it. We are all experts at touching stuff. We've done it all our lives. We know that when we hold something about that yay big, what we should expect, and that is as heavy as anything's going to get before it becomes radioactive. That will be the heaviest thing of that size you've ever held in your life. So um, in terms of making and its relationship to materials, for me it's about an experience and a type of learning that happens through experiencing materials that um, at the end I urge you to come up and touch my cubes. Right, that's me. Very good. It really is very heavy. Um, so, Elizabeth Corbyn, who's also involved as a researcher at the Institute of Makers. Making. making. Oh, making. <laughs> we will get there. I'm going, to put, I'm going to get something deliberately wrong about you two as well. Is that right? So just be ready. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth's the leading light of the Maker movement and a co-founder of the Maker Assembly UK. Elizabeth, over to you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Liz Corbin, and I'm wearing my Maker Assembly hat today, not my Institute of Making hat. Um, so I co-founded Maker Assembly in 2015 with these lovely people uh, who are not here today. Um, and, actually, <laughs> and actually, we founded Maker Assembly in the hopes of answering or beginning to uncover and kind of explore some of the questions that we're hoping to look at today. So I'm very excited to be a part of today. Um, Maker Assembly is a series of gatherings which we hold across the whole of the UK and internationally for people interested in making. We bring people together to critically explore cultures of making, including their meanings, politics, histories, and their futures. And we do that through quite a mixed practice. So we make things together, we uh, facilitate open debates, we play music from instruments that we also make together, we dance, we cook food together, and then we eat together. Um, and it's worth noting that really nothing we do in any of our gatherings are, is particularly prolific or cutting edge or profound, and that's sort of the point. What we're really interested in more so is things that are fun, that are accessible, that are engaging, um, and that are relevant to the people in the room, and particularly things that provoke people to connect, to discuss, and to ask questions. And we do all of this in order to do two things, really. Um, we do it to create a space where we can all together critically explore what, where, how, and with whom we are making things today, and also explore the roles making can play in our everyday lives. And we're doing that because, particularly now, more than ever before, we're operating at a time where making is increasingly a contentious term. I think it's a very loaded term, complete with lots of kinships and tensions, anxieties, opportunities, and pitfalls. I suspect that everyone in this room probably has their own idea of what constitutes making and who, who uh, characterizes a maker. And we don't think that's a bad thing. We actually think that's quite a good thing. Um, for us, 
Making comes in all shapes and sizes. People craft, they tinker, they engineer, they fabricate, they repair, both young and old across the civic, private, and public sector for either a profession or a hobbyist pursuit for research or study. Um, with digital and analog tools, exploring historical perspectives, unique lived experiences, and also visions of the future. So we're very purposefully and totally without shame working towards a definition of making that is very broad and indeterminate. It's one that's unfixed and unsettled, one that acknowledges the plurality and contingent nature of the term, and one that's not prescriptive. Making is a process, so we think that it only makes sense the way we come to define it and understand its meaning is a process as well. Who in this room, I'm curious, has, has made a thing, has had a go at making something in their lives? Raise your hands. Oh, lovely. Um, who found it more challenging than they may have initially thought it would be? Okay, yes. That's because making is hard. It's harder than um, I think people currently want to lead you to believe. Um, In my own practice, I've realized I'm never more aware of what I don't know than when I start having a go at something new. Making has a way of kind of pushing you out of your comfort zone, of putting you into a playful and explorative place and of helping you to fail, and fail often. And importantly, when we get to make with others, or alongside others, be that physically or virtually, I think making can push us to challenge our own assumptions, to get beyond our own cultural biases, and to help us surpass our own limitations. And that's effectively what we're trying to do with Maker Assembly. We're using making as a vehicle to get people to share their insights, expertise, and um, passions with one another, to connect with peers that are like-minded but also potentially not so like-minded, um, to gain new ideas and influences, to question your worldview by listening to others, and to test your assumptions and hypotheses. And for us, most importantly, within this is that a philosophy of diversity and inclusivity is, remains core to the culture of making. I think in response to today, there's undoubtedly, there's no singular definition to why making matters. But what we're really interested in is understanding the relationship between how meaningful making can become in relation to how open and inclusive and diverse it is is. Um, For us, when making's done in the open, when more people are invited to participate, when it's no longer sequestered by disciplines, how meaningful can it become then? I think it was Robert Neuwirth who said this amazing quote, um, that today we're increasingly faced with real-world problems that are far too complex for any one discipline, any one skill set, any one NGO, organization, bank, or government to fix. And for us, making could potentially become that kind of shared language and mechanism to transcend our own limitations um, and have a chance to invite new players into the game and potentially rewrite the rules of the game entirely in a way that's more inclusive and participatory. Thank you.
Now, don't forget, I'm going to make a deliberate mistake in introducing everybody, so you have to listen out for it, OK? Yes. You ready, Daniel? So Daniel Charney is director of the Creative and Cultural Agency from now on and a founding director of Fixperts, a network of practical fixers helping to, and I quote, build the next generation of designers, engineers, inventors, technologists, artists, dreamers, change makers, and management consultants. <laughs> it's not a mistake. Uh, no, it's not a mistake. No, no, okay, oh, well, fair That's enough. Whole point. <laughs> Over to you. Thank you. <laughs> So it's definitely not a mistake. Um, I'm Daniel. Um, I've been involved, involved, I've been making since I can remember what it means to understand the world or try it. Um, and uh, in my kind of uh, process of making, I discovered that design is a good place to be and studied it and learned it and taught it. And now involved in trying to understand the role of making in our future lives through exhibitions, through consultancy, through teaching. A lot of it is teaching and learning. Um, involved in, uh, in it, from a professional perspective, really trying to address something that I think is wrong. And we have to also look at what's happening realistically. We have a massive problem. Making may matter, and this might be a place where everyone agrees, but most people don't make. And I've seen that also over 25 years of teaching design, that the making skills, the use of making has deteriorated. There might be renewed enthusiasm, but we have a massive problem. We have to do something about it. So Fixbits started from an exhibition called Power of Making with the Craft Council and the VNA, commissioned a project around craft um, but it was time to see what we all share. And so this was a real focus on the knowledge of making and the empowerment that comes with making. Um, Fixperts, together with James Carrigan, started as a kind of side project uh, with the idea of getting micro-volunteering. Uh, people are good at making to make something for someone, give it to them, and share it uh, online. Uh, it's grown a bit, uh, but the principle is the same. It's a simple story. Excite people with making skills and get them to share that knowledge. Um, the makers themselves come from all walks of life. As long as they can solve a problem creatively for someone, they are fixperts. The fixed partners can be anyone, really. As long as you start with a conversation, you identify something, you make it together using... Uh, whatever is around first to try things out and then share that knowledge. Um, it's very close to a lot of the things that the maker movement talks about, but without being co-opted for the things that have since been uh, hijacked. Um, but we're very close to a lot of people. Now, these are the values that we think making uh, can do, you know, and how do you do that? So I'm going to tell you a little story, one of 400-plus uh, projects that have happened around the world. Fixperts is taught in 31 universities, and um, we get films. So we start the day with a Google search, and we get things uh, like this last film, which I'd like to tell you the story of. So Gabby is a five-year-old girl. She's in Bedlesford School. Uh, she has uh, restrictions of movement, and the whole school really is an amazing place that helps children um, to uh, understand the world. But she uh, met uh, a group of Fixperts from Kingston University. They also recently, last week, won the Helen Hamlin Fixperts Award for a spoon. Um, they work as a team. 
And as a team, they share that experience. So making matters to them, not only because of what they make, but also who they do it with. Making also means that they go out of their school, into the community. They meet people, they talk to them, and they find out that trying to be in someone else's shoes is a really exciting way of uh, thinking about the world. And making for them is the next step. So they have to learn observation skills and empathy, exercise their empathy or at least experience it. They try and understand the impact of what they can achieve. They try and do it so that the person is not only empowered but also gets a form of uh, independence. And they do this through prototyping, making all kinds of things, thinking through making, and making in different materials, trying out their knowledge. Material intelligence is so important to our daily life and to professionals. The only way you can learn it is through making. They then go back and get feedback and they, from a real person, and most of the things didn't work. So they went back to the drawing board and came back with a new principle. But here they really did something quite exciting. They thought about a different way of connecting to the body through themselves by experiencing it. They made a kind of rubbery flexible spoon that Gabby can wear, and for the first time in her life, she fed herself and became their friend. So they learned a big lesson, I think. We met Gabby last week. She's delightful. But really, what they learned is what uh, we hear about being the most important to our future in terms of uh, skills and work. And I know that the RSA... Um, has, is now looking at work, but also it's been looking out for projects like us. And together with Comino, they are the two institutes that have really helped us start Fixperts. Uh, RCA, RSA Catalyst Fund was the thing that allowed us to create the organization, which is Fixperts, which functions across the world. And Comino has helped us in our stage into schools, which is our next kind of adventure, where uh, we think that making... And creative problem-solving is the key uh, to what people need to learn and learn through making. So we're looking at those social skills through making. We're looking at emotional intelligence through making. And you know what? There's another opportunity. Maybe we can see how this really should connect to industrial policy and other big things. But in this case, we try to understand how Fixbit's impact on students and on the people that... um, uh, co-design it. Uh, Tavistock helped us understand that it really can change students' careers to be more socially involved. It can change uh, students, but that might be too late. So we started working with schools, and now the last two years we've been working uh, with Camino and Clore, Duffield Foundation and, and uh, the Conran Foundation have been helping us to really get this uh, first STEM qualification framework based on fixed grades into schools, sitting on the uh, table of the Department for Education. We hope that it will start being taught next year. But in order to do that, we had to run it through a lot of volunteers and teachers, and there are, it's an open-source um, kind of uh, guideline which people can download and just get going. It's happened in universities. We believe it can happen in schools. Um, this this technical award is STEM because that's one of the roots today, STEAM, art and design, uh, management, and 
uh, surgery. There's all kinds of things where making will really matter, that thinking, that mindset. Um, it's also about what it does in makerspaces. So I'm just going to also raise one piece of research that we've done at From Now On, which is looking at the things that drive makerspaces and the type of the type of things that making can enable uh, around community, about creating a, a safer world, changing systems like circular e economy or cleaning an ocean, supplementing education, creating new markets, and making new meanings in uh, cultural institutes. So all these things happen through making. One amazing example that came from the Maker Library Network was combining skills with life skills, and 10 uh, projects in which each skill was accompanied with uh, an understanding of, for instance, if you're learning to uh, make shoes, talk about reliability and learn it. And when you are going for your first interview of employment, you can talk about the teamwork, you can talk about the material, you can also talk about reliability. And uh, these things can happen in all kinds of places. We've done, been involved in a project in a library in Denmark, which used Fixperts as a way of engaging for citizenship and, and local engagement between partnerships between the universities, local government, and community, all through making. Um, this is now also something that the uh, UK library task forces are looking at. The role of makerspaces is primarily cultural and social before it is innovative and about employment. So, yes, this is Fixperts, and it's really very much part of social design, where we see that making is the basis for education, health, living conditions, dignity, well-being, work, transport. We could keep on going, and I think we should, because we have to change the way it's seen. For that, we are launching a new platform called FixEd, which is a way of broadening the conversation FixEd uh, will provide opportunities to broaden our approach and really open up the conversation around design as a process for improvement while delivering compelling practical materials and guidelines like FixBirds and other uh, programs which will be talked about. It's being launched today at the RSA because we have a really strong commitment to being involved with these, the people that are here. Comino have enabled... Uh, this stage in our work, and uh, I invite you all to join us in this conversation uh, where Fixperts will be uh, one of exam the examples. And just in terms of why, why I think the biggest thing that making can do is to remove barriers to enable choice, which is currently my definition for design, I guess. Thank you. Great, thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Now, last but not least, Bill Lucas, influential educationalist, professor of learning and co-creator of the Expansive Education Network and the Centre for Unreal World Learning at the University of Winchester. Did you spot what I did there? <laughs> Just caught that one, I think. Uh, a, bit, a, a touch of the not real. Over the last century, human beings in affluent societies have become more and more sluggish. Millions of us work in offices, pushing paper, staring at screens, discussing proposals and rearranging words and spreadsheets. For our leisure, we look at more screens, text and tweet, escape into virtual worlds, gossip and chatter. Some of us still play tennis or football or knit, but the drift is undeniably chair and couch woods. Our functional bodies have shrunk, just ears and eyes on the input side and mouths and fingertips on the output side. 
Laundry now involves all the physical skill and effort of pushing clothes through a porthole and pushing, pushing a button. Cooking can be no more than ripping off a plastic film and closing the microwave door. Our real bodies get so little attention and so little skillful use that we have to make special arrangements to remember them. We program country walks and trips to the gym into our smartphones and so on. I wanted to start from a, uh, with a reading from a, a book by my friend and colleague Guy Claxton called Intelligence in the Flesh, um, which anatomizes the times we live in. I want to just cover those in a few seconds, just get us thinking about that. Ask a question, how on earth have we got here? Um, reflect on its trace in our language, and then focus on schools, uh, exactly uh, as my colleagues have been saying, how we can start earlier and more effectively. We've heard fantastic uh, uh, antidotes to the trends that Guy describes from Liz and Zoe and Daniel. If you uh, uh, want to go to Stanford University's How to Make Almost Anything course, you'll find it well oversubscribed. If you're um, fed up with uh, giving your children sanitised things to do, then read Gerva Tully's Dangerous Things You Shouldn't Let Your Children Do and let them loose on summer schools where they can do them and they will come home with bruises. We need homo faciens as much as we need homo sapiens. The hand, as Jacob Bronowski put it, is the cutting edge of the mind. And we have forgotten that, and we've forgotten it in schools. So how on earth have we got there, a relatively rational group of individuals who plan politics and cultures and schools? Well, it's tempting to blame technology. And I'm not going to, because I think it's far more complex than that. And I think technology could be part of the solution. Antonio Damasio, in his uh, elegant and well-known book, Descartes' Error, puts the finger on René Descartes. You'll know the problem, beginning of the 17th century, uh, our ability to understand this strange thing in our head, this strange matter that makes up our brain, or is it mind, is limited. And his crime to see mind and body as separate, with mind the important actor and body its corruptible inferior carrier. Fast forward by 300 years, at precisely the time that the grammar schools, I say that quietly, the grammar schools were a burgeoning movement for good in the Victorian era. And the four R's that we started that century with, reading, writing, arithmetic and rorting, have become three. And they've become three for a well-known tendency, that is to say those people who are aspirant do not wish the heavy-limbed sisters and daughters but mainly sons of, their, uh, of, the, of the people who come in through the tradesman's entrance to be sitting beside them in school. When the ill-advised creators of the EBAC, today's EBAC, a code for the a mis- extraordinary code for the English baccalaureate, decided that art and design and design and technology and music were not academic enough They had simply forgotten to read the history books. They'd forgotten to look at the medieval trivium and the medieval quadrivium. Pity, really. But their decision was significant. It's not just policymakers. It's also scientists of all kinds. Descartes was a philosopher scientist. Fast forward again to Piaget at the uh, early dawning of educational psychology making a totally reasonable assumption that young people, children, move from the physical to the imaginary to the formal to the rational and abstract. How wrong he was. We now know from various fields, but primarily the field of embodied cognition, that is simply not the case. 
Don't take my word for it. Go and read Roy Porter's Flesh in an Age of Reason or Francisco Varela's uh, and colleagues' The Embodied Mind or indeed Andy Clark's wonderful putting brain, body and world together again. Because that is what we need to do. That's the missing link in schools. Descartes' successors today, the public philosophers I read, are Richard Sennett and Matt Crawford and Mike Rose and Michael Frayling. And they're the kind of thinkers who are now with the benefit of science and in an interdisciplinary way, as my colleagues were suggesting, making these arguments most cogently. These scientific and cultural shenanigans have, of course, left their trace on our language. Literacy, numeracy, and a word that means somehow being good with your hands. Just remind me what that is. It doesn't come readily to the lips. There is no adequate word yet. Maybe we need literate, numerate, and manipulate, as uh, uh, Bruce Archer has suggested. Possibly we should add to that articulate if we're trying to have a, a nice quartet there. Craftsman doesn't quite do it either, does it? Although I love it personally. But it sits resistantly as a non-PC discoverer to half of us. And that's not helpful. Crafty definitely doesn't work. And craftsperson-like gives us a kind of uh, an ug of over-PC-ness. We're on a slippery slope here, aren't we? In the words that we use to describe the things that we care about. Because we can move so quickly from academic equal smart to practical equal vocational equal probably stupid. And we suffer from all of that when we come to my final point, schools. Schools, preschool, college, university, education, lifelong learning. All of those interested in formal-ish education. There are a small number of wonderful schools here in the UK and indeed across the world. Just coming to my mind now are School 21, just down the road, which puts this stage centre. Or uh, an independent example would be Beedale's. There are a growing number of schools in the country that I spend most of my time in, Australia, are driven by organisations like Hands On Learning, who are making this normal, normal for kids who are going through uh, otherwise academic trajectories. We know now from research which kinds of learning and teaching methods work. We don't have to go, I'll have one of those, one of those, and five of those, and I'll leave it to chance. We know a lot about this. It's been the focus of the Centre for Real World Learnings, thanks to tonight's sponsor, uh, Comino Foundation. And in our research with EDGE and with the Royal Academy for Engineering and City and Guilds, we've identified the kind of signature pedagogies, the DNA, the thumbprint on this kind of teaching and learning. And it's things like, as Zoe said, experiential learning. You can't plan this without doing it. It's the design process, the prototyping that Daniel was talking about. It's the engineering design process and design thinking often working in tandem. It's problem-based learning. We can't do this in abstract without really getting our heads and hands and bodies around the big questions of our day. It's tinkering, the playful experimentation that Liz also alluded to. We know, too, that there are some physical challenges for schools. If you want to do this, you need spaces for mess. You need spaces for work in progress. You need completely to reconfigure the way you do your design and and your display so that you're not just triple-mounting perfection but also showing prototypes and mistakes, as several of you have said, along the way. This is challenging to a world which Ofsted-izes a blemish-free existence. There's really good support around the side from the work of Carol Dweck and Angela Duckworth and Anders Ericsson if we want to go there too. So... 
We know what we might do. There are hundreds of schools doing this. We need tens of thousands of schools doing this. Despite, they're doing this despite the prevailing climate, which is hostile to it. We need all schools to see that making matters. And I leave you with a quotation from uh, 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 Educating Ruby, an imaginary uh, granddaughter of uh, Rita, as in Educating Rita. This is not about party politics. It's about how to get people in power to do the right thing. It's about being able to speak confidently about our dissatisfactions with the status quo. And above all, it's about sharing as widely and loudly as we can the stories of deep success that we come across, and not just the A-level results. Thank you. Uh, thanks, well, that was great. So I'm just going to ask two questions. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm sorry, arbitrarily, I'm going to ask two of you to answer the first and two of you to answer the second before we open it up to, the, to, the, to everyone else. I want to start with a question about the claims that we make for making, because it's, it, 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 maybe it's my kind of narrow-minded policy wonk brain, but I've always, had a, I've always had a kind of view which is the more claims that are made for something, the more critically you might want to look at those claims. So I wanted to ask uh, Bill and... Uh, Liz, what we say about making, we're saying, well, there's the value of making a thing of value and innovation. We're saying that in making, we learn specific skills, how to use specific things. And we're also clearly saying that there is something here that goes on which is around kind of wider personal development. I'm just interested, in, and, and I know you, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex question, but how should we understand the claims that are being made? Do they all have equal kind of status? I'll start with you, Bill. I know you just finished, but, but what, what, do you want, what do you want us to really understand about the claim that's being made for making as a process? I think there are two strands of claiming. One is about values, the kind of schools that we want, the kind of young people we want to emerge from them, and that's quite different. That's socially driven. Um, we want people who can solve problems, can make mistakes, can think for themselves, can be creative, can design, all of that. Um, the kind of world we want is going to be happier if it has people who can operate with all parts of, their, of, of the homo facians, homo sapiens body. I think the second part of it is much more difficult, which is evidentially what do we know about uh, effective teaching and learning in making and what claims might we make about what that does in the other parts of your learning life? There's some beginnings, beginnings of evidence there. We don't have long here, so I'm not going to make a big, big, big speech. But we know certainly a lot about the myths. We know that, that the idea that it's cognitively not complicated has well been, has be, has been demolished. The idea uh, that there are different kinds of expressing your intelligence whilst not necessarily taking a straight Howard Gardner view on that. Again, I think most people would agree, but being careful not to slip into a learning styles argument. Uh, we know that uh, different people at different stages of their emergence as uh, thinking, consenting adults and young people need different things. So there's a, there's a life stage argument too, so it's going to look very different in the early years. I mean, in fact, that's where I'll end. Much of this happens naturally. I think young children are proto-makers. We don't have to kind of invent it for them. And what probably happens, and this is more polemic and political in your landscape, Matthew, but we get into the atomized, fragmented, subject-disciplined world of secondary, and it all goes to pot. Thank you. Liz? I agree, totally. Um, <laughs> Sorry with that. Um, but I'm, I'm going to add a few new things. So I think um, one of the problems of the kind of nascent maker movement 
And the focus which certain people have put upon make spaces thus far is it's very product focused. It's actually about the made object. And I think nine times out of ten, the most meaningful aspects of making is not the made object. It's the journey in which someone goes on. But I think probably in this current climate, potentially what a very important and valuable thing that making can kind of reintroduce into our lives is actually taking seriously time for play and exploration and for just failing and, and being okay with that. There is, there is an educational rationale there. I mean, people like Ron Berger and the uh, expeditionary movement have made the case stunningly effectively. Uh, Peter Hyman at School 21 has a very nice phrase, beautiful work. And I think we need to encompass in that the beautiful process of working and making. And the danger is you end up with the end of it. But, but I, think, I think there's a, a growing sense of the fact that more young people have a real pride in what they're doing surely is to be desired, isn't it? And the ability to change some narratives... I mean, I, I was at a presentation not too long ago, and a, desi- a designer engineer was speaking in front of a group of people, and, and it was a, a very similar narrative that I felt I was taught when I was in design school, which was, you're a prolific, maverick, individual designer, it's not a team sport, and you never fail, you always succeed in making this beautiful thing. And I think we desperately need to start writing new narratives, and making is just one medium which can help us do that. Great. So, Zoe, Daniel, one question for you. Um, I'll be releasing the, 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 work, the piece of work I've been doing about the future of work and good work next week, and I'll let you into a couple of uh, insights into that. I mean, the, the, the headline is that I will say that it should be our goal that all work is, is good work, and hidden away in one of the chapters is also the argument that in talking about technological change, we need to take more account of kind of human factors, ergonomics, the relationship between human beings and technology, that I think that too often our technological, when we talk about technology and industrial strategy, it's all just about the technology and not enough about the human-technology interaction. I'm just interested from both of you in how making gives us insights into this debate that is taking place about the way in which technology and automation is going to change our lives. And does it help us to have perhaps a slightly more value-based approach to thinking about the impact of technology on, on, on work? Let me start with you, Daniel. Um, it's pretty simple. We need to be able to uh, creatively respond to change. Making enables us to experience that and to have a relationship with change. That's the biggest argument. Technology allows us these things sometimes. Sometimes it creates them. This understanding of technology as uh, part of our world, our messy world, which includes... Uh, materials that have been formed and uh, behaviors and shifts and we need to be able to respond to these shifts and through making we learn to respond to change and we learn to think about alternatives. So that's the kind of the key argument there and that relates to human behavior on the first level of encountering something new and it also relates to a really complex situation where you need to bring a lot of people together to think about change. Making gives us this ability to negotiate this idea from the first place. So it, helps us, it may therefore help us to resist a kind of technological determinism, for example. Yes, and in that sense, we have to be able to not just train people who make machines, but people that make things with these machines 
that fit our uh, good work or good life. Uh, I mean, many of, the, many of the situations that arise from technology um, have been kind of played with in sci-fi, and um, we end up with many stories where people are sitting in a bubble under the ground not doing anything. And, of course, um, that can't be a good option, uh, being alone. Um, I think the key maybe relate to uh, a term that Jürgen Bay uses sometimes called making society. I think that's where we should be heading. Um, now, when you are faced with technological um, prowess and uh, you often end up in situations where you're down to your human ingenuity to come up with uh, what to do with all this technology. And um, we see a lot of things, unnecessary things being made. Um, not to, you know, if we counted uh, the number of Yodas printed, 3D printed, they might compete with the cats on the internet. But um, we need that stage as well. We need that um, playful period with technology at any given time. We can see that in film. When film started, people were doing, playing the film backwards and the hat landed on someone's head. That's now in every collection that, uh, you know. So there's one point there which is to do with, um, I guess, this not to be... To, have the ability to live in a world where technology is one of the things that you are able to engage with. Thank you. Zoe? Um, I think it, it's, it is obvious, but technology is always relative, right? This is an extraordinary technology of its day, and this is another one of a closer day. But maybe the difference can be that if I asked you how was this made, you could come somehow imagine a process, but this is much more abstract, and what's going on in there is much more abstract. But actually, you may not know how a pencil is made, and one way to do that would be to cut it open and have a go at making a pencil. But it's much more difficult to cut this open and have a go at putting it back together. And that type of engagement you can have with technology as it constitutes itself now, modern and emerging technologies, is that often something that you're not encouraged to open up and fiddle with and that they don't encourage a kind of messy relationship to materials. I suppose one thing is really making can put technology in its place of it's another tool. That's how we see it. There's many pieces of equipment that we have at the Institute of Making which are high-tech, very you know, sophisticated pieces of technology and enable, and people make pieces of technology, but they are a tool in your toolbox. But you only get to the point of under, you know, laying your hand to the hammer or turning to the Arduino programming once you've played around with it. And it comes back to that sense of being free to mess about with it and have have time to do that and also a context in which you learn something within it. Um, I'm going to take this moment to just then say that when I was at school, it went from being called CDT to DT. So it was craft design and technology when I started secondary school. And when I left secondary school, it was just called design and technology. And what they were doing was dealing, working out how to have less mess. You know what I mean? They didn't want certain things in the classroom environment because they built a new building and you could see what was being lost was the messier, wetter um, craft end of the spectrum and they would have a computer lab instead. And I think we need to, in terms of an educational agenda and uh, topics and subjects and silos, my fear is that STEM is just another way of repackaging exactly that and STEAM is just playing into the hands of STEM and Really, it's we as humans, we are an ecosystem, right? And how can you value one thing in that ecosystem more than another? And 
you don't know where the innovation and the ingenuity will come from. And if we agree that humans getting up to stuff is, you know, that's our history as, as human beings involves various points along it where something happened that was actually, do you know what, the test tube was only possible because there were expert glassblowers on, and they were able to do this and understand that material. And then chemistry is born. An entire discipline relates back to a craft and you, you, you just don't know where things are going to come from. And I think you need to have the, the ecosystem of human activity as rich and diverse as possible. And so the minute you try to make subjects of things, you're already sort of on the back foot with that, my fear is. Thank you. I'm going to let the panel have a rest. <laughs> um, I'm just going to take... I'm not going to, not, not going to do a kind of Q&A. I'm just going to take any comments that people want to make around the room for kind of ten minutes... And then I'll ask the panel to come back and give us one killer sentence for you to take downstairs and think about while you're having a drink of wine. John Slater from the Commonwealth Foundation. Can I ask the panel whether one of the purposes of education is survival of the human race? Because if it is, then we've got to teach people to adapt. To teach them to adapt, they have to be creative. We have to develop within them as a core of education, the ability to create, to adapt, to modify, to survive. Or maybe you don't agree. I think you all agree, don't you? Yeah. Yes. They all agree. Very good. That's a good start. <laughs> Excellent. Consensus. Right, there's two hands here. Hi, thank you very much. My name is Ella um, and I'm 24. I work at the British Library, but previously I used to work for an artist. And I suppose you've been talking a lot about education this evening. Um, and I was interested to hear more about your thoughts about the workplace how are you educating people into a workplace which is basically based on delivery and um, receiving information and delivering information in a product-based packages um how how are you planning to tackle changes within the workplace for young people um and is that something that you're facing and and working towards thank you yep um eric snell artist and educator uh, setting up an art school in the 90s, um, I've seen students come through with uh, less making skills than ever. But what I'm interested in is also uh, the fact that no one actually talked about art schools. They talked about design. But um, I think a lot of the things that go on and used to go on in art schools before they became merged with universities, and a lot of artists that are out there today, Anish Kapoor, all went through, and, and uh, Anthony Gorman and all those went through a very free, open art school practice where it, you, know, you had the raincoats rehearsing in the, in the canteen as well as uh, making... And it was a, a combination of activity. And there was, I think there's also conscious activity of making which is worrying I think you need to think about quality and the opportunity to have a, f a really open debate about the consciousness of what making's about and where it's going. Fantastic uh, and then here, two hands here Yes, I'm Peter Marsh I'm a journalist and uh, I've started a project called Made Here Now which is about British manufacturing um, in fact the Community Foundation has helped, helped me in this so thank you for that. Um, the, the, the thing that I've been struck by listening to the people tonight is that um, you seem to be talking about the world of making, um, not manufacturing. So for one thing, I'd be interested to tease out the difference between the two at some point. Um, the, the other thing is really, I, I'm interested, like some of the other people who have made comments, about the link between what you've been talking about, which is personal development, which is great. Everyone would, is keen on that. But but the, economic, the economics of the world we live in, how to get jobs, how to get good jobs, how to get sustainable jobs, 
And what I would like to see from some of this discussion is some sort of work done on just what the economic and social impact of this is in terms of wealth creation and employment. Hi, Martin Robinson. Um, I'd like to just uh, wave a flag in defence of silos, really, uh, at school and how they can actually give us space where what you're talking about could actually take place. And with that, the idea of doing things for their own sake instead of having, you know, it's for good or critical thinking, creativity, all these other things. I was reading something about philosophy today saying that as a philosophy student, he didn't feel studying philosophy was good for critical thinking. What it's been damn good for is philosophy. And, you know, uh, actually having arts, crafts studied in mess for their own sake, the embodied cognition, and valuing that, and not the whole idea about we do music because it makes us better at maths and all this thing. It's, it should have space on the curriculum. It shouldn't be assessed in the same way. That should be a given. Thank you. I'm a product designer, and people say, how do you come up with them, you know, products and things? I said, um, I think really you have to look for a problem. And I think with, with children and other designers, you have to have, let them have a critical idea, like why not? What if? And that obviously transfers into lots of other areas of society and functioning as well. But I don't think there's enough of the why not, why don't I try this, okay. being critical with children. Thank you. And then behind you, finally... Hello, yes, I'm Jim Cook. I'm a software engineer by trade. I've made things all my life. And I'm interested to know thoughts around the intersection between making and engineering. Um, As a maker, I made things when I was young. When I went to university, I learned engineering. I went back to making things, but using the skills I'd gathered and learned as an engineer. And secondly, I'm intrigued around uh, quality and aesthetics. A lot of what I've heard tonight resonates with my latest rereading of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Um, and, and it talks a lot about problem solving and quality and how we build those things in. And I believe teaching people wisdom and quality and aesthetics is important. I did see a final hand at the back there, gone. You look so disappointed not to be called. I just wondered if there was a way for people's perceptions to change about mess and maybe change it into a more positive meaning, but I think that's a societal thing. Okay, positive mess. Um, Panel, uh, I failed completely because normally I ask for questions and I get comments, and now I ask for comments and I get questions. So you you could each... You're just going to arbitrarily have to pick one thing that somebody has said that you want to respond to and then as I say we can continue the conversation Bill start with you rangy sentence I'd love to be down in a silo with Martin Robinson being messy for its own right but I'm wary of the language alerts that Zoe gives to us because I think although stem and steam don't quite cut it and we need craft we mustn't divide ourselves I'm interested by Matt Crawford's question that maybe uh, in an age of distraction making things and fixing things is an antidote to narcissism and finally, if you'd like, if you work in a school or with schools and you'd like to be part of a survey we're doing, understanding the culture of making this happen, please have a chat to me over a glass of wine afterwards. Very good, very good, very good use of semicolons and and, and buts in answer, <laughs> answer four you. questions in, in, one, in one sentence. Yeah, Thank Daniel. You. Um, I would like to pick on the idea of the purpose, because I think that's kind of the thing that uh, is worth... Uh, 
looking at which environment, uh, which making is used for what purpose. And I completely agree that we need the messy making for its own self, discovery through making. We also need making that um, is uh, very attentive to, to people's needs. We actually need that very much now. Um, and I would say that this purpose of um, maybe that, that definition of removing barriers to enable choice is as correct for an interface manufactured in the millions as it is for someone getting to a poll box to vote. So this idea uh, that um, making is not connected to manufacturing, I think I would say that it is very much one of the first stepping stones to manufacturing, as it is to culture. And that's why we have to start there. Thank you very much. Liz? I'll keep it quick. I think in response to a number of the questions, the only thing I want to say is the importance of mixing things up, of getting new players in the game, of, of recalibrating current systems that may not necessarily be working to our benefit anymore or to the environment's benefit or to the wider society's benefit. And I think if you want to stay within silos or you want to look at the economy or society or manufacturing or philosophy, whatever you want to look at, making has a role in all of those different facets, if nothing else than to simply just disrupt things a little bit and get us to think differently about things. Sorry. I hadn't realised that we were supposed to be answering those questions, so I was no, just absorbing it no, as a nice thing. And now everyone's mentioned the ones I'd remembered. I've forgotten anything else. But I have the thing that stayed with me is that literate, numerate, and then what else? And I think that would be a nice thing to kind of take into the discussion downstairs. Like, how do we describe the other thing? My attempt was material at, in the... It's, it's, pardon? Dextrous. Yeah. But something, anyway, we something, can count. Yeah, that I think that would be something I'd be ready to discuss with people over the cubes. Very good. That's a perfect way. So the conversation will continue. It's been, a, it's been a fantastic conversation. Just before we finish, join me in once again thanking our friends and colleagues at the Commonwealth Foundation and most of all our terrific speakers, Zoe, Liz, Daniel and Bill. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the rsa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.